Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Very excited to announce the newest podcast to the Ringer Podcast Network family. It's Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. So this pod is gambling, 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 and more gambling. Yes, I have a gambling problem, and yeah. I want to share it with you. I want to yeah. make it your problem. And it's not just football. NHL playoffs, uh, NBA playoffs, baseball, horse racing, there's boxing, UFC. When we hit- SummerSlam. Oh, all the wrestling. When we hit July, we have a, a hot dog eating contest for Nathan's. And some surprise celebrity guests. Yeah. All right. It's Against All Odds with Cousin Sal. Subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcast. And we're thinking about once a week, right? Yeah, let's do it. Hello and welcome to Achievement Oriented, the Ringer's video game podcast. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a writer for TheRinger.com. And joining me from the wilds of Los Angeles, where he is taking yeah. pictures of coyotes from his window, it's my co-host, Jason Concepcion. Hello, Jason. It's from the street. There were, yeah. there were two coyote pups, I believe, and then I saw the mother coyote in the street about 20 feet from me. <laughs> uh, very dark black nipples, so I knew I thought that it was the mother. <laughs> and the other two were kind of scrawny. Protect your corgi at all costs. He chased after her kind of when she ran away. <laughs> he doesn't know anything. And joining us from Brooklyn, where he is half an hour from Coyote Ugly, I guess, it's our fellow ringer writer, Justin Charity. Hello, Justin. Hey, guys. Yeah! <laughs> so later in this episode, we're going to talk to Stephen MacArthur, also known as the video game lawyer, yes. about the legal problems with fan-made games and other intersections of games and the law. But first, I want to take you both back to a scene from late last year, the date, November 28th, 2016. Wow. The place, my apartment, the people, me and Justin Charity, and the occasion, the day that we received codes for Final Fantasy XV. Justin came over to my apartment to marathon Final Fantasy all day so that we could have him on this podcast to talk about it. And something reawakened in you that day, Justin. That's right. I don't know whether to feel proud of or guilty about my role in this, but you had been on a gaming hiatus. You grew up playing video games, but you essentially gave up gaming for close to 10 years. And something in you was rekindled that day. And you are in deep right now. You are a hardcore gamer in the last six months or so. Imagine telling someone that Final Fantasy 15 is why you got back into video games. I don't even feel that good about that. I love that game, but I feel kind of conflicted about that, to be totally honest. So we get new messages from you every day about the new games that you bought or are playing. Like three days ago, we got three quick messages from you. You played Inside, you played Edith Finch, you played Firewatch, evidently all in one day or one week. (laughs) One weekend. One weekend. (laughs) The weekend of walking simulators. (laughs) Then the very next day, I get a message from you. Bought Prey, bought all the Bioshocks, bought Overwatch. God damn it. (laughs) And that's on top of the fact that you played Nier Automata, which you wrote about for the site and we talked about on this podcast. And then you played Persona 5, which you have beaten, despite the fact that it's 100 hours long. I may not beat that game for three. Like legitimately three years. <laughs> so now, you're, now you're playing it again. So I just this is fascinating to me because I feel like gaming is a hobby that people can pick up and drop depending on their circumstances in life. Like if you are a book reader, you're probably not going to go 10 years without reading a book. If you watch TV, if you own a TV, you're going to see some TV. 
but if you're a gamer, you might have things come up in your life. It's a time-consuming and expensive habit. A new console comes out. You figure, I don't have time. I don't have money. Whatever it is in your life at that moment that doesn't lend itself to video gaming, and then suddenly you're out and you feel like you can't catch up. But you have gotten back into it, and it's like a Encino Man scenario. It's like you're it's Brendan so Fraser man. being thawed out of the ice, and Jason and I are Polly Shore and Sean Astin. Jason's Polly Shore, and sure. we're escorting you back into the culture, and you're teaching us things about the culture that we didn't even realize. So, how has this been for you? Well, for a while, it was feeling like I was Liam Neeson in Taken until I started trying to play Overwatch last night. And I was like, oh, God, I suck at this game so much. I'm retiring again. Right? Wait, so like, now you got it. You got it. This is why you can't be like Ben and not message me, not add me as a friend and like play games without me. Why are you doing this? I can help you with this. <laughs> Tell us why you got away from gaming. We know what got you back into it, but why did you drop it? You know, I think when I was growing up, right, like I would say when I was like a young kid, like maybe before I was 10, I didn't play games so much as I would like watch my friends play video games. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking of like SNES or NES and SNES era and Genesis era. And I think the periods when I was a teen where I very acutely would just spend hours in front of a TV playing video games. I had a couple of friends that I would do that with, but it was otherwise like a very solitudinous activity. <laughs> My part, it was a thing that I specifically enjoyed doing alone very late at night. Uh -huh. And in college, yeah, I think college was too, is maybe like too social of a setting and it just took me out of my whole vibe. And so I said, I think with the exception of like Halo 3, which I remember playing a lot of at one point in sort of um, the first Gears of War game, those are things that would be fun to maybe be in someone's dorm and play. But otherwise, I was so, I, I don't know. I think once I was out of the element of sort of just being in a room, in a house with only two people in it <laughs> um, and playing video games by myself in the dark. Uh, I don't know. I just, I just got off my vibe, man. So now you are lonely enough to get yeah, back exactly. into video games. <laughs> how has, uh, so how, like, I remember when I, I stopped playing video games for most of college and then I went over to a friend's house and I was like, Hey, let's play chess. He had this big chess board. And then I saw yeah. that he had a PlayStation. I was like, actually, I want to play video games. It's been years. And that's what got me back into it. What what has been, what are the changes like beyond just like the, obviously the graphics and stuff, but what is, so what's changed in your time away? Well, I, you know, I think with a lot of online multiplayer stuff and a lot of online functionality, which I guess was there with Halo, but in the sense that all of the games I've bought at this point, one, I've bought from a, a store in the cloud right and two <laughs> in that like something like overwatch where i basically I, I have to be online to play it that's the thing that feels the newest and i actually remember around the time and i, I knew i was sort of fading out of gaming was around this the change from i guess it would have been from final fantasy 10 to final fantasy 11 and i remember a big part of where i was like i don't know if i'm gonna keep doing this is when it felt like games were gonna sort of migrate online and like the console market were really going to try to push the gaming experience to be an online thing and i just remember that that very viscerally not appealing to me um mm -hmm. but now it's so easy right because back then i i lived in a house yeah. with dial-up <laughs> and so the <laughs> idea of having to be online to play a final fantasy game is just like oh this is this is gonna suck just from a logistical standpoint but everything is so seamless now that that ease of of online also feels very different from what I remember 
of like gaming in 2005. Mm -hmm. And to what extent are you trying to catch up with what you missed as opposed to just playing all the new releases? Like, are you trying to sprint through the past decade? You bought the Bioshock games. Are you trying to hit all the highlights of the last decade in gaming history? See, this, I don't know. This is where I need help, right? Because I don't want to be, I don't want to just play all, I don't want to be constrained to just games that are available to play on a PS4, but I also don't want to buy another console and have to buy a gaming PC. Like I'm intimidated as a consumer. <laughs> yeah. I'm very intimidated because I, I might go crazy and spend way too much money on this stuff. And yeah. I don't want to do that. I know I don't want to do that, but I otherwise... Like I said, I don't really want to be constrained to just playing PS4 games and the limited amount of PS3 games that I can sort of get on PS4. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your, uh, you recently had a piece go up on The Ringer about streaming and how streaming has changed the ecosystem of gaming over the last few years. You kind of started by talking about Persona 5's developer Atlas not letting the players of Persona 5 stream the game, having very stringent rules against streaming, which they then rescinded. And screenshots, by the way, and sharing screenshots from the... You can't screenshot the game in just from the the normal menu on the PS4. Just turn the internet off, I guess. What do you you know about screenshots that you couldn't take screenshots (laughs) in? In my day, you had to take the disposable Kodak camera and put it in front of your TV and take a picture of Cloud and Tifa on the Ferris wheel. To take Polaroids and then fax them to yourself. Yeah, exactly. So, so what, what's the reasoning behind this? Like, why why do they essentially want to turn off, try and roll the internet back to 1998? Well, the express reason they kept harping on was spoilers, right? Which is, one, is a strange rationale, because at this point, any spoilers that were aggressively going to sort of throw themselves in front of you as somebody who is remotely interested in Persona 5, the game was out in Japan for so many months before it came out in North America that it just seemed very strange that, that they were like, well, this is to avoid spoilers. Because, again, it's theoretically a however many, like almost a year old game. But that was their cited reasoning, right? Is I think they basically set an in-game calendar date where they were like, look, don't stream past this date or else. And it was funny because it was a really, it was a relatively early date. It was like, I want to say July 7th was the in-game date that they were like, don't stream past this point, which isn't necessarily that far into the game. So it seemed just sort of it seemed randomly aggressive that they were like, basically, you're only allowed to stream the first third of the game. Mm-hmm. So you got into a lot of aspects of the streaming culture in this piece, not only how much you can share, but also the way in which YouTube personalities can bring a lot of attention to a game that might not even be known otherwise, and the way in which maybe their commentary can color how that game is received. You talked about demonetization and how the ad revenue that some streamers rely on can be compromised by the content of their videos. Is there a particular aspect of this whole ecosystem that fascinates you the most? Well, yeah, I just, so, you know, we were talking about this at the beginning of like me coming back into gaming after nearly 10 years away from it, really. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess I just, to even after sort of talking to people and writing that piece, I think the thing that just seems so strange to me is the idea of these outsized personalities, yeah. you know, on YouTube, on Twitch, within mm-hmm. the gaming community and their ability to like create and shape conversations about different things. And it just seems like a, it's, there was obviously always been like a gaming press, but it, it feels like such an unprecedented function 
that, yeah, it was just fascinating to me as someone who just didn't, I, I don't really have a sort of analog from that as a carryover from my, you know, PS1 era <laughs> peak of, of gaming. Right? Yeah, I think it's, I think that's an, uh, I think streaming is kind of like a commonly misunderstood kind of subculture, even among people who play video games. Clearly, Atlas did not understand streaming within the context of the relationship between developers and their audience. Ben and I were talking recently with the developer of Ultimate Battle Simulator, and he was talking about how his marketing strategy was to get the game in beta form to, you know, eight or 10 popular streamers and just get them to play it while streaming it. And that was like basically his, and that game became essentially a viral hit. So what, what changed Atlas's mind? I think the fact that everyone was mad at them. I mean, (laughs) but that's the thing, right? It's and this is this, the dynamic was interesting to me because I think it would have been one thing if it's just that, you know, Atlas announces draconian policy about streaming. It would be one thing if it's just like people who are maybe interested in streaming that game once it launched in North America were just like, well, this sucks. But it really was a sheer force of like the entire games press was like, yeah, the Atlas seems to be. I mean, I guess I, I read some articles that sort of conceded, you know, the idea of, well, Persona 5, very story driven game. Like you could see why more than other types of games, you know, you would want people to not be spoiled on certain elements of that game. Sure, I kind of get that. But it just seemed like the critical consensus, at least in North America, was like, yeah, you guys are bugging. Like this is. This is part of what gaming, this is part of the fun of what gaming is in the 2010s, right? Is is this part of the sort of like post-market, post-consumer experience of just talking about games online? Like streaming in a certain way seems as natural as tweeting about Persona 5. And to just pick a particular subset of mediums and crack down on discussion there when, again, like I could just as easily spoil the plot of Persona 5 by tweeting about it. You know what I mean? And so, yeah, I think the fact that there was this overwhelming consensus of like, you guys have no idea how conversation on the internet (laughs) functions is maybe why Atlas ultimately backed down in this case. And for anyone listening who maybe also doesn't understand that or, or questions the appeal of streaming, the appeal of Let's Plays, I can understand its popularity. I would also say that I haven't really found a way to fit it into my life all that well. Like, I I guess it's just that I'm consuming such a large amount of scripted content already and then trying to get my own gaming time in that it just doesn't leave a lot of time for me to watch people play no matter how compelling the commentary is. But can you describe, just based on your research for this piece, like what the elements of an entertaining stream are or what the appeal is, why someone who is playing a video game and talking while doing so has millions of followers and an enormous audience and clout? Well, I will say that just one of the one of my friends who I was sort of talking to initially who put me in touch with a couple of people for this piece, um, my friend Channing, who lives in the Bay, he was specifically telling me, I remember at one point he mentioned that he watches Let's Plays of, of Nier Automata specifically because he doesn't have time to play uh-huh. Nier Automata. Um, and I thought that was interesting. And again, this is like at the very beginning when I'm starting to like ask these questions. But yeah, I, th- I found that interesting, right? Because, you know, in a certain sense, it didn't make sense to me. I was like, well, if you're going to watch this long game, why don't you just play this long game? But in uh-huh. a certain sense, it's like, yeah, I guess there is a difference between like putting on a YouTube video semi in the background of 
you know, your Google Doc where you're filing on debt. You know, the same way that you and I, you mentioned at the top of the podcast, playing Final Fantasy 15. I was writing mm-hmm. a piece while we were playing that game. Right. <laughs> I yeah. was doing two things at once. Um, so I don't know. Gaming's kind of about multitasking, I guess. But um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess well, with a lot of the stuff I watched online, I remember I basically watched two types of things. I watched the sort of Let's Plays where it's like you really have to be there for the sort of, let's say, quirks and personality of the person mm-hmm. playing, no matter how bad they are at playing maybe Um, sort of like the dynamism of how they talk and Uh just the sound of their voice um, which also explains why I listen to a lot of the podcasts that I listen to including this one like it it, I do see how a person could maybe just totally be sold on a personality and a voice and could just be so comfortable with that person's perspective and voice and humor that yeah they just want to sit and watch them play through Persona 5 or Nier Automata. But the other sort of video that I was really getting into on YouTube was um, one of the people I talked to for the piece was this guy, Robert Yang, who I who was doing a series of videos about like level design and Half-Life. Um, mm-hmm. And my friend Liz also has a series where I think she's doing Doom now, but she... She did this multi-episode series where she just was playing Wolfenstein 3D and was just talking mm-hmm. about the level design and principles of level design. And that was the sort of thing where it's like that that wasn't as goofy and sort of bit driven, I would say, and as comedic. It was it was sort of relatively dry, relatively straightforward, but very critical. Look at the games that these people are playing. And and I think importantly, it's like people playing games that they've already played before in the past. So they're revisiting them. But mm-hmm. that's the sort of video that I enjoyed the most and ended up spending a lot of a particular Saturday um, (laughs) online watching. Um, But those also seem like significantly less popular types of videos or sort of more wonky level exploration, you know, video criticism. Yeah, the the Yang portion of your piece was particularly fascinating because he's he develops, I guess you'd call them like adult themed games or uh, games with adult themes, sexual content, you know, things that games have really struggled with in terms of representing in a way that's beyond titillization, you know? And I think, so Twitch won't let those games of this nature be streamed. YouTube has sort of a different system, but this seems like something that's really going to come up more in the future as as games of this type proliferate. Right, totally. And that's sort of, I mean, that that was the fascinating dynamic that seemed like a really big thing to try to grapple with in a piece after sort of coming in cold to a lot of streaming culture, but it does seem like there is this three-part uneasiness, this three-part conflict between like developers, you know, fans and the platforms themselves that have, you know, a sort of weird relationship to both how they want to police different kinds of content and also how they want to kick back ad revenue to a lot of these personalities. And it just seems like on a formal level, despite how big this sort of YouTube gaming ecosystem is, it also feels kind of half-assed. It feels kind of like, again, on a formal level, it feels like there are a lot of glitches in the relationship and it leads to some instability and you you end up with these podcasters freaking out about demonetization and censorship and things like that and it just seems like that's largely because one a lot of these people who do this 
and are popular online seem very young, but two, because a lot of this stuff is, it feels kind of obscure and a lot of it feels kind of murky from a legal standpoint and from a philosophical standpoint. So before we let you go, I want to ask you about playing Persona again. <laughs> and, um, so Kotaku's Luke Plunkett, who was a guest on the show and I think might be my gaming soulmate, we had him on to talk about how we're both scared of video games. He also wrote this piece about Persona's new game plus which is the mode where you beat a game and you can start it again with some of your abilities and equipment carried over and luke was writing about how he very rarely replays a single player game he gets the end of the story and he's done with it which tends to be how i am also but he has been different with Persona 5. He's found its new game plus to be particularly rewarding because it lets you see more of the game and do away with a lot of the chores that you have to do on your first playthrough and, and kind of have a more casual or leisurely experience. Have you found that to be the case? Do you usually play games again? Well, yeah. I mean, so for instance, I've played a lot of Final Fantasy XV's new game plus, which doesn't, mm -hmm. or at least I've played a lot of the post game of Final Fantasy XV, right? And I think with Persona 5, you know, I, I read Luke's piece too. And I feel like I a lot of the social stuff that he's that he's talking about in the piece of the like the things you don't get to do, there are things that are on my checklist that I just never got to in terms of maxing out certain, I guess they're called confidant ranks in the game. So basically, you know, cutscenes and conversations with people in the game that you're getting to know based on how much time you dedicate to them and your your in-game schedule. There are definitely things like that that I I'm trying to make a point of doubling back on and fully developing this time around. But here's my main problem with the new game plus in Persona 5 is that my battle dream team <laughs> is a late game dream team, right? And so mm -hmm. basically I'm I'm like frustrated because I have to basically play through the first 40 hours of the game <laughs> just to get my get my core four back together. And <laughs> I'm yeah. sad about that. I'm 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 as far as the second palace again now. But that I still have like a few more palaces to go before I have my four key like battle team members back. Mm -hmm. Whatever that means. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so last thing you did start prey also. So I just want to ask you because I, I have misgivings about prey. I'm kind of waiting for a consensus to form that will tell me whether it's so good that I can't afford to miss it. But I'm I'm worried about the scariness, obviously, and I'm also worried about from videos I've seen. It looks like you can pick up and interact with almost everything, and it's giving me. Bioshock Infinite flashbacks where you could just like click on every barrel and box and there would be a couple coins in there or something that would just keep me clicking on these boxes even though I didn't want any of this stuff and it would take <laughs> me 10 times as long to go through the levels. So I, I'm wary of games that let you click on everything for no real reason because I know I can be compulsive about that. So how much should I worry about both of those things based on your experience so far okay. and is it good otherwise well okay but here's the thing i've only played first of all i believe in you playing as many video games as possible ben <laughs> that's my uh -huh. core belief yeah, <laughs> on this podcast setting a great example for me i i've played only like the first 30 minutes plus of prey uh -huh. and i take your point about the scariness i would say it's a more of an uneasiness i it's not it's not very jump scary so much as it's just I, the first 30 minutes of that game. I don't know what my expectations were, but the first 30 minutes of it, I was like, what is happening? I, it was truly like impressive. It was truly the first 30 minutes of the game is impressive and jarring and difficult. 
after mm-hmm. a certain point. It definitely left a, an interesting impression on me, and I'm very eager to go back home and play some more of it. Well, one man's uneasiness is another man's scariness, especially <laughs> if that man is me. <laughs> but I'll give it a try. All right, so I am impressed at your gaming pace over the last several months, and I admire it because I've never had a gaming hiatus longer than maybe six months or so. There was a, a summer when I was away and I was busy with a lot of things and I didn't play games for probably at least half a year. And even then I felt like I was so out of touch and the backlog was so huge that I would never catch up. So to get back into it after the time you spent away, I am glad we got you back into the fold. Just teach me how to play Overwatch though, because really I'm not... Let's go, man. Come on. Wait, who did you use? Who did you use? Uh, I used May. I used the very... very, Did people uh, get mad at you because you were making walls in front of of your own team? Uh, (laughs) I used the very very butch player with the pink hair. Zarya. Um, She's awesome. She takes some... You have to really get the rhythm of her, but she's fantastic. And She's a hard diva counter, also diva who you I the green girl in the in the, in the map. <laughs> and Genji, I, yeah. I use Genji. Nice. <laughs> All right, so Jason has to step out to sign a lease on a place that will protect him from coyotes. He will rejoin me at the end of the episode, and Justin will keep sitting in as we talk to Stephen MacArthur, the video game lawyer. Right after a quick word from our sponsors. Are you ready to save money and play more games? Yes, you can do both of those things if you'll let me introduce you to our sponsor, Gamefly. Gamefly is the best way to buy and rent all of your favorite games. At Gamefly.com, you can pick your favorite games and have them mailed directly to your door. Gamefly is the leading video game rental service with over 9,000 titles to choose from. You can try your favorite games and movies before you buy, and then keep the games as long as you want. You'll never have to worry about late fees. You can cancel at any time. So go to Gamefly.com AO and start your free premium 30-day trial today. The premium trial allows you to check out two games and or movies at a time. You can only get this offer by visiting Gamefly.com slash AO. This could be a way for Justin to burn through his backlog more quickly. And you can too. Just go sign up and start playing all your favorite games absolutely free for 30 days. Again, that's Gamefly.com slash AO. And I also want to tell you about Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice. Get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door, as mine was just this week. It's an awesome life hack and a no-brainer choice. You no longer have to schlep to the store to buy a cheap disposable razor that will give you a cheap shave or spend a fortune on razors with gimmicky shaving tech you don't need. When you use your Dollar Shave Club executive razor with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter, the blade just gently glides, giving you such a smooth shave. Dr. Carver's Shave Butter is transparent for a more precise shave, which helps prevent ingrown hairs and fights razor bumps. Both problems I would be glad to be free of. You too can make the smarter choice by joining Dollar Shave Club. For a limited time, new members get their first month of the Executive Razor with a tube of Dr. Carver's Shea Butter for only $5 with free shipping. And after that, razors are just a few bucks a month. That's a $15 value for only 5 bucks. And in your first month's box, you'll get a weighty handle, a full cassette of four cartridges, and a tube of Dr. Carver's Shea Butter. After the first month, replacement cartridges ship automatically at their regular price. And there are no hidden fees and no commitments. You can cancel any time you like and you can only get this offer exclusively at dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement that's dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement 
So last weekend at Polygon, former podcast guest Owen Good wrote an article about fan-made games and developers taking down those games. And he quoted a lawyer, Stephen MacArthur, who calls himself the video game lawyer. And so we're going to talk about that issue of fan-made games and copyright claims. But we also want to just generally talk about Stephen's background and how one becomes a video game lawyer, what that entails exactly. So welcome, Stephen. Hello. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So also last weekend at the Tribeca Games Festival, I was listening to Sean Vanneman of Campo Santo talk, and he was talking about the founding of that small studio and how he was speaking to someone, I think, at Telltale, his previous employer, about how you start a studio and what their advice was. And the first thing they said was, do you have a lawyer? And he said, no. (laughs) What do I do? How do I get a lawyer? Can you give us a little rundown of how it's helpful for a video game developer, anyone involved in video games, to have a lawyer? What are the intersections of video games and the law that surface most frequently? Sure. Uh, So I'll talk about smaller uh, studios that might be anywhere from one uh, to five people, just because I Mm -hmm. think the larger of a studio you get, the more it's just kind of obvious that you need a lawyer. Uh, but maybe for these small studios, um, it's, it's less obvious why a two-person studio startup may need a lawyer. So the most common things I see would be first protecting your intellectual property, right? So getting a trademark for your game name. And the reason that is one of the most important things I think early on a game company can do is they can run their game idea and their game name by a lawyer and the lawyer can say, hey, just kind of give them a heads up very early on in, in their process, whether that's a good idea or not. Because it's much better to figure out, say six months, a year before the release of your game, that either your game title or your, the game IP itself is not gonna work rather than a week or two after release or a week or two before release, right? You really wanna lock down uh, as much of your IP as possible as early as possible. So that's, that's something that I talk with a lot of people about. The other really big thing is just, especially if you're working with someone else, uh, there's always this feeling, hey, I'm working with this person. We worked together in the past, maybe at Telltale Games, or they're my best friend, or they're my brother. Uh, Certainly this will work out, right? Um, Well, it always works out perfectly until it doesn't. And then everyone wished they had some kind of partnership agreement in place. Everyone wishes they had something in writing saying what happens when we no longer agree, what happens when one person says, hey, you know what, we started this game studio two months ago, we're, we're, we're six months from release, uh, but I just got a job at Riot Games, so I'm gonna go take, I'm gonna go take that job. By the way, I still own 50% of the company, so you uh-huh. keep doing all the rest of the work, you release the game, and I will take my 50%. And technically right. they're owed that. There's, technically they're owed that, there's no partnership agreement, right? You just made a 50-50 partnership with someone that just went and took a, a job somewhere else, and now they own half your IP, half your game, half your idea, uh, you're in a really bad position at this point. And this is the kind of stuff that we see all the time that partnership agreements can help address. Another thing is just if you're doing anything targeting kids under the age of 13, because then you get these COPPA issues, these privacy issues. Uh, the mm-hmm. U.S. regulations are extremely draconian uh, <laughs> if you violate privacy laws. Yes, it's a storyline on Silicon Valley this season. Yes, yes, but really only if it's against, they're, they're really draconian if, if you have a game that targets kids under 13. Often, you know, people look the other way. You know, you don't have a privacy statement. You're not really disclosing. You're not really following the privacy laws. That may, that may be fine, but regulators will look the other way. The second you're targeting, you have a kid's game, you know, your player base is 8, 10, 12 years old, anything under 13, 
they'll come after you and the fines are huge. And that, and if you're also, the last thing I would say is if you're doing anything regarding gambling, uh, any kind of tournaments, a lot of these people, they, they, I see a lot of startups create these kind of <laughs> software, these platforms, and they say, well, we're going to allow people to, to play video games for money. You know, we'll play Hearthstone for money. We'll do this or that. Obviously, if you're doing anything that could even be any way considered gambling, you should definitely talk to a lawyer. And I would imagine that a lot of the people who would be starting up a studio would be younger and creative backgrounds and maybe not all that well-versed in the law. And so it would probably be pretty easy to make some missteps. Yes, yes, it is. And and we see that happen often, especially with the partnership of things, especially with trademarks and, and you know using game titles that they shouldn't be using. Uh, and in the app world, uh, you see it a lot because a lot of these games are now, they're not on Steam, they're not on, uh, they're not on console, they're uh, iOS or Android mobile applications. And this is actually a really interesting uh, part of trademark law because as anyone that's spent you know, a few minutes reading about trademark law, you learn that you can have uh, the same trademark as someone else if your products are different. And this is why you can have a Delta Airlines and a Delta Faucet. Right, because even though they're both Delta, no one's going to confuse an airline company with a with a water faucet company. But with mobile apps, let's say I have a video game called Flow, and someone has a uh, well, let's call it Fire. Right? I have a video game called Fire, and someone has a uh, workout video series called Fire. Well, in the normal world, we could both call them Fire, and there's no confusion. But with mobile apps, they're both mobile applications. They're both sold in the same platform, and you type fire in the, in the Apple or, and, and Google and they come up. And the trademark office considers them both mobile applications. So now you have all these trademark issues where if your game title shares a title with any other mobile application, theoretically you could face a takedown, you could face a lawsuit. And it's, so if, especially if you're making a mobile application game, if, if you're in that space, trademarks become a big deal, especially when there's what, five, 600 new mobile apps a day, it's pretty easy to accidentally start conflicting with someone else's trademark. And it mm-hmm. is kind of still an open question over to what extent, you know, just being a mobile application alone means the goods and services are, are identical. Mm-hmm. And so Owen's article came about because there have been a bunch, there are always a bunch of fan-made games that are tributes to an existing series or based on some assets from an existing series, manipulate an existing series in some way. And there's a repeated pattern where people will announce these things, word will spread, and then they'll get a cease and desist letter. And that will be that. And then there's always a, a reaction with people saying, well, why did they even bother to announce this? Why not just put it out there? And once it's out there, the company won't be able to do anything. There are varying levels of strictness when it comes to the companies and what they will and won't allow. Mm-hmm. So can you give us a, a sense of that landscape, what the potential penalties are, what the downsides are of just waiting and putting it out there? Right. Well, it really depends on whose IP you're using. Yeah. If you're using Nintendo's IP, Nintendo will come after you, and they are merciless. <laughs> and uh, I don't think this is good policy on their end. Uh, I think, for example, I think it was last year maybe, there's a, uh, a Sonic 3D game, total fan-made game, and they released it on Twitter, began to get social media attention. Someone released a YouTube Let's Play of it. And if it was Nintendo, they would have got a letter from the lawyers, and if they ignored that letter, they would have, they would have been sued. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is Sega, so Sega responds to the YouTube, the YouTube video on, you know, on Sega's official account and says, DMCA time. Just kidding. <laughs> Keep making great stuff. Uh-huh. And I just thought that was the perfect way to respond to fan-made games, right? 
you know, if you're a fan and you're making something non-commercial, keep making great stuff. You know, use our IP. You know, just don't don't make if if you're making merchandise, you're selling merchandise and apparel yet. Don't do that. Don't put it on Steam for thirty dollars. Don't use our logos, right? Because that can get into trademark issues where you're uh, naked licensing and all that. But you know, Nintendo's policy is is too strict. Uh, they will come after you. And so yeah, it leads it leads to these people saying, well, if, if you're going to use Nintendo's IP, just wait until just don't announce it beforehand. Release it. Release the finished game, the final game. And then even if they send you a takedown, it's too late. It's out there, right? You can't, you can't put mm-hmm. the cab back in the bag. Now, that's, never, that's not advice I would ever give a client because, <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, that's illegal. <laughs> and, uh, right. you, I mean, technically they could see you. I mean, technically Nintendo could say, look, the cat's out of the bag. This, uh, the DMCA is ineffective. You're right. The cease and desist letter is ineffective. You're right. You got us. Here's our lawsuit. You know, see you mm-hmm. in court. And, and they could do that. And would that be good business and marketing for them? No. But who knows with Nintendo? You know, I mean, they, they might. I wouldn't put it past them. Mm-hmm. And where's the line with most companies? Because other than Nintendo, there are companies that will allow more. But I assume that there is some line that you really can't cross with anyone. Right. So the line you can't cross with anyone, even with with people that are pretty generous. I would say P- I, the best example I can think of of a generous policy would be Riot Games. Now, lots of companies have IP use policies like Epic. Epic Games has one, um, Wizards of the Coast, and you know, many, many other companies. But you know, even with Riot Games, for example, if you start using their logos and selling apparel, um, they're not going to allow that. For most companies, you, if you're making a fan-made game, you want to put a disclaimer on there somewhere saying, hey, we're fan-made, we're not official. You wouldn't want to use their logo, uh, even if you want to say, hey, we're Zelda or whatever, we're using one of their trademarks. It's a word mark. That is a little safer than using their logo, but you would want to make it clear you the title of your game wouldn't just be Zelda. It would be something like a fan-made game, Zelda, right? Or Zelda, a fan-made game. I, I would even make it clear if possible in the title that it's, that's a fan-made game. You know, nothing racist, sexist, anything like that. And generally want to release it for free, right? And that's because that's what it is. It's a sell. It's you know we're releasing this game. We're not releasing it to make money. We're releasing it because we're fans. We're celebrating the IP. Now, if you're charging fifteen, twenty dollars for the game, are you really doing it because you're a fan, or are you really just trying to leverage someone else's intellectual property into making your own money? So, and obviously, if you're selling T-shirts, you're selling uh, different kinds of apparel and merchandise using someone else's logo or characters. I mean, that's always going to get taken down. So, I want to ask a question outside of a sort of game-to-game comparison. I, I normally write about music, and I, you know, I, I want to say a couple of years ago, I noticed a sort of uptick in rappers sampling music from video games, and I'm wondering if you have any perspective on that, since a lot of you know, a lot of this music that I'm thinking of, it exists in another world where it's not necessarily music that's released as singles, as commercial singles. It's music that sort of maybe someone will sample like an old Donkey Kong game and it'll hit the mixtape market. And I'm always curious about how games companies sort of how vigilant they are about policing that sort of thing. So what I can say, and I'm not I'm not sure this answers your question, but using music, using other people's music in, in video games is, is very dangerous. And that, that, that is one thing I would suggest. If you're making a fan-made game of someone else, don't use the video game music. So even if you're using um, different kind of assets, uh, the, using the music is very dangerous. And that's because often the music is not owned by the video game company that uh, uses it in their game. The music is often licensed from a third party. 
and that third party license may give the may give the game company the ability to use the, the music in their video game but it doesn't give fans the ability to, to use that music when they make a fan made game and this actually i see come up a lot when people do let's plays on youtube so what will happen is someone will take a game like grand theft auto and rockstar is like great yeah you can you can do a let's play of that we're cool with it they put their let's play on youtube you know, while they're playing Grand Theft Auto, some music comes on because Rockstar Games has licensed some famous band's music. And now they're, the, Let, the Let's Player's YouTube video gets a takedown from the owner of, that, of uh, that music. And it's often automated through content ID. And at the end of the day, uh, Rockstar doesn't make, got a license to the music, but they don't have a license to sub-licenses out to third parties, the Let's Players, and, and so on. So I see this with Let's Players. They end up getting takedowns. I've had video game companies come to me and say, hey, what's going on? Our Let's Players are getting takedowns. Uh, we don't want this to happen. We bought this music. We own this music. You need to contract and say, oh, actually, you don't own this music. Your Let's Players are going to have to mute their own Let's Plays. You're going to have to renegotiate all your music contracts so that you have the right to grant it to people on YouTube for, for their Let's Plays. And that's something that a lot of video game companies don't look at. They, they license this music, and they don't really realize that their fans don't have the right to use it. A lot of game companies are now starting to create their own music, which, which I think is great. Um, here in LA, you'll talk to kids, uh, music kids in undergrad, and they'll talk about how you know, maybe they're, they're musicians, they're studying classical music, and they'll talk about how it used to be that all the jobs were in the entertainment industry. You, know, you go work for film companies and such, making music for films, and now all the jobs are in video games. There are all these um, kids are hoping to make music for Blizzard, for Riot Games, for EA, for all these other companies. Uh, because now a lot of these video game companies want these original scores, original music, and I think that's the best way to do it if you're a video game company, so that you don't run into these into these issues. No, that sounds about right. I mean, those the layers of inception and publishing rights sound like the music industry as I know it. Uh, and that's basically what I was curious about: is sort of like how complicated does it get? <laughs> right. The music industry is more like Nintendo. I mean, it's merciless. If you use someone's it's it's the all the music is owned by a few different parties uh and the licenses and royalties are owned and if you use their if you use their music at all in any context you put it on youtube at all in any context it doesn't matter if it's fair use it doesn't matter if it's fan mid game you will just get a takedown and it's all done automated and uh yeah uh, it's merciless for sure and what about the video component of Let's Plays? Because we were just talking earlier in the episode about Atlas objecting to people streaming too much of Persona 5. Is there a limitation there? Is this just something that companies figure this benefits us to have people promoting the game? Or are some companies aggressive about trying to prevent people from putting video of their game online? Right. So this is actually something we uh, I always talk about with other you know uh, lawyers in the video game industry. We have a couple of different annual meetings, one at GDC and one at the Video Game Bar Association here in LA. And this, this is always an interesting topic because, you know, is Let's Play fair use, right? And, and that's really what it comes down to, is streaming yourself playing a video game, is that fair use or is it copyright infringement? And as much as, as, much as many of us want to say it's fair use and we're really looking for every argument and we want to champion the fair use rights, it's copyright infringement um, at the end of the day. It really is. And you know, pretty much everyone agree to that, even if they don't want to. But even though it's, it's technically copyright infringement, sure, technically, a company like Persona 5 can do to take it down. It's another one of those things where it's just a bad business decision, usually for the company, usually. Not always, though. 
there's some games and some let's plays which really do detract from sales and you really shouldn't allow it because some games are experiences right there. They're less video games than they are an experience. I think that Dragon Cancer is a good example where it's not really a game, it's more of an experience. And if you sit down and you watch someone do an entire let's play of that Dragon Cancer, it really does actually replace playing the game for yourself and now you're not going to purchase it. Uh, so I can see why, why some game companies would not allow it. On the other hand, I think for the vast majority of game companies, it, again, this is just part of game companies should have policies, right? They should have open policies about fan-made content, fan-made content and Let's Plays. Vast majority of video game companies should allow Let's Plays because it's free marketing, it's free advertising, it's community building. It's, there's a lot of very, very good reasons to allow Let's Plays even if technically they're copyright infringement. Mm -hmm. And I guess, uh, is the law that you practice now very analogous to just typical copyright law or, or other ways of practicing law? Is there an advantage to having your familiarity with the industry that gives someone a reason to go to someone who specializes in video game law as opposed to other types of media? Right. Well, video game law isn't really a thing, right? So, because video game law right. can encompass, <laughs> right, a video game company is going to have immigration issues as they try to hire people. They're going to have employment issues. They're going to have tax issues. They're going to have mm -hmm. trademark issues. They're going to have a, a, a breach of contract issues. There really is every type of issue under the sun a uh, video game company would have. In fact, you're hard pressed to think of what, what issues they might not have, right? They're, it's just It's just business law. Mm -hmm. So I think what video game law really means is it really means having a lawyer that understands the video game industry, right? Having a lawyer that can look at fan-made content and have an eye to say, okay, that that should be allowed. That's cool. That's fan-made content. That's that's great for a company. And looking at it and being able to say, no, like this this crosses the line, right? And if you're not steeped in in, in the industry, um, it's it's more it's just more difficult to make that judgment call. And uh, when you're dealing with issues video game companies face every day, you start to understand how all the regular players in, in, in the industry do things. So you're able to advise your clients easier. As a video game lawyer, I, I deal with like, for example, um, like this YouTube issue, right? So if, if someone wasn't a video game lawyer, they may not recognize when they're drafting this music contract as this company's previous lawyer didn't, that Let's Plays would be an issue and that this game company was going to face very angry complaints from its Let's Players that their videos are getting taken down. Whereas a video game lawyer, because they have so many video game clients, they start to see these issues come up over and over again, right? So I see these issues come up with trademarks and mobile apps. I see these issues come up with YouTube and Let's Plays and uh, many other types of issues. So it's really just about having, it's not a specific type of law. It's really just about having someone that knows the industry and that knowledge and that experience can really help uh, identify issues before they arise and can help solve issues as they arise. Um, another really, really big thing is I do a lot of enforcement of IP. So a lot of game companies that have trademarks and copyrights, they have to enforce them. And uh, being able to enforce IP in a way that will not get that company on the top of Reddit slash games as bad guys is really important, right? Being able to go to someone who's making a game and infringing their copyright and trademark and saying, hey, instead of just a really nasty letter that's going to get posted to Twitter, going up to them and just being able to talk to them and say, hey, we, gotta, we have to enforce our IP. This is why you're doing this. Let's change that to this or that. And just approach them in a way that won't go viral against the company is really important. And I think, again, you have to know the industry and you have to know 
basically have to have your pulse on the on the community to really know when that line is crossed. So I want to ask about your experience then, because you were a competitive gamer before you went to law school. So what did you play? Oh, right. Yeah. So this was a long time ago. So this was back when we were called cyber athletes, right? The word esports didn't even <laughs> exist. And I don't know if you remember this. This is like the late 90s, early 2000s. The biggest tournaments in the world would be, you know, $250,000 split five ways at the annual, you know, Counter-Strike CPL World Championship, you know, $50,000 each. And today that would be a, just a minor side tournament that wouldn't make it coverage. So I played, I played Counter-Strike and I was on Team Zex. We would, we would compete in CPL. We would go to tournaments all across the country. We were the second best team in the U.S. at the time. Played that a lot in college. And uh, this, for a couple semesters, I was really into that. My grades were not so good. <laughs> So then I played uh, Warcraft 3 competitively and was number one on both 1v1 ladders. Played Magic the Gathering, which is sort of an eSport, but more of like, you know, the tabletop game sport that they still, to this day, have huge tournaments all across the world. Uh, but I think it was 1999. I was, you know, playing in the 18 under junior world championship and won a $10,000 scholarship to college for that and was ranked number three in the world for a while for any age group. And we'd go to like a bunch of couple of pro tours and that kind of stuff. But that was, you know, I did that in high school and I quit playing Magic when I went to college because I wanted to focus on my grades. And throughout, you know, playing Magic, playing Warcraft 3, playing Counter-Strike, and uh, later when I played League, you can see like I would have five semesters of straight A's and then one semester of, of a C average. <laughs> it's like, oh yeah, that was a semester I was traveling, competing. So usually what would happen with, with all these games, I would, I would get that semester of terrible grades and I would just have to quit cold turkey and go back to studying. So a lot of that competitive gaming was in undergrad and in college. And uh, these days, from what I understand, I mean, you, you can't do both. You, you, you cannot do college and be a programmer, right? So I was playing, I think, you know, probably six hours a day, seven days a week. And I was a pro gamer, right? I was really good. I think six hours a day, seven days a week today would be considered casual, right? Mm -hmm. You'd be playing 16, 17 hours a day to be pro. So it's, it's just a different level today than it was then. My office is actually one floor below Team Solomid. And I used to play with those guys way back in, in League Beta with Reggie and Dan. And they have a house set up. I'm actually doing all their trademark work. But they have, a, they have a house set up a few blocks away from their office. And of course, all the Team Solomid, the guys live there. They, they play there. They're there 24-7. They're all in one house, all playing. That's where they live. They don't go to school. They don't do anything else. They're all together. But, you know, back in 2001 for Counter-Strike, I only ever met them in real life at tournaments. We were all in school. We all did our own thing. The idea, even back then, the idea of having everyone live in one house like that, just eat, breathe, and live the game and live the teamwork was just didn't exist. Yeah. So I eventually, you know, I, I also played the precursor to Hearthstone. So it's a game called mm -hmm. World of Warcraft, a card game. It was basically magic. It was the, the precursor to Hearthstone. I, I played that competitively and was ranked number one in that for, I think, the first couple of years it was out. Ended up using the winnings from a lot of stuff to pay for undergrad, to pay for law school. Got an Ivy League law degree at Columbia. I uh, graduated there in 2007. Then went to work at Wall Street for a few years. Big Wall Street law firm doing copyright work and patent work for huge companies. Then moved to LA to kind of focus on IP law. Worked at a big Century City law firm for several years doing nothing but patent and trademark work. Uh, just getting trained and trained. And then, so I guess after about six or seven years working at these big firms, working for huge clients, I decided to go off on my own, create this kind of video game law boutique because I wanted to do work for video game clients and mm -hmm. wanted to do nothing but copyright and trademark work for the most part. And I have guys that work with me at my firm that do 
other kinds of work. So when the partnership agreements come in, when other kinds of things come in, terms of service, privacy statements, they take care of those and they draft those. They're games lawyers as well. But I really focus on the trademark copyright IP issues that I've been doing my whole career. Mm-hmm. And I guess there are a few other people who sort of specialize in this, but it's probably uh, more of a fledgling specialty for law. I suppose there's not a ton of competition for people who are just video game specific practices. Right. Well, there, there's definitely several lawyers out there that, that practice in this field. And a lot of them in the beginning were entertainment lawyers, right? So a lot of these video game companies, most of them were... I guess in California, and they would look for lawyers. So a lot of the the video game lawyers today, especially the older ones, are just ex-entertainment lawyers, right? So they were doing entertainment of some sort, and they said, well, they just kind of viewed video game law as entertainment law. It's just kind of a subset of entertainment law. I don't view it as a subset of entertainment law. I view it as something completely different. Mm -hmm. So now you have, yeah, so you have all those guys, and you have guys uh, that are video game lawyers. Maybe they used to be general counsel of, of Blizzard or general counsel of one of these big companies, so maybe they didn't know anything about video games, but then they got hired to, to be an in-house counsel to actually work for the companies their employees. So and now they don't work for them anymore, but given their eight years of working at Epic or Blizzard or whatever, they clearly know the industry so they can help uh, negotiate publishing deals and licensing deals. Oh, and that's the other really good thing a, a, lawyer with, a lawyer with knowledge in the industry is good at is, you know, when you're negotiating a publishing deal for your video game or licensing deal, it really helps to have someone that knows the ins and outs of the industry so that they can kind of button everything up perfectly. But yeah, mm-hmm. it's is definitely a fledgling industry, um, but there are a lot of us, more than you would expect. I mean, at the, at the game developer conference, we have a breakfast for video game attorneys, and mm-hmm. I think there was 40, 45 of us there. Hmm. Okay. So yeah, I mean, that, and those are the ones that traveled there and were invited because we know about them and decided and woke up at 8 a.m. to get there. So mm-hmm. uh, there's, and you know, a lot of it is not attorneys out there you can hire. A lot of those people are, you know, Zynga's patent counsel or the three lawyers or, or how many lawyers look at Rockstar and Take Two, right? They're all, a lot of them are in-house, right? They're not really kind of independent lawyers as strong as you can, you can hire. But yeah, there's definitely quite a few of us. Yeah, yeah for the record, I'm the best. <laughs> Nintendo must be creating quite a bit of work just on its own. <laughs> so there's that <laughs> positive, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's a, hu- it's a huge industry. Uh, you know, people are surprised. There's several of us. And, you know, some of the people in, in the industry, some of the other lawyers in the industry kind of get a little competitive. But at the end of the day, it's a huge industry. I mean, it's bigger than Hollywood. And who knows how many entertainment lawyers out there for Hollywood? There's probably thousands and thousands of entertainment lawyers. Why shouldn't there be thousands and thousands of lawyers in this industry? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a huge multi-billion dollar industry. There's, there's room for a lot of us, I think that's for sure. Yeah, there's what there's several Phoenix Wright games even, so there's yeah. room for <laughs> that kind of video game lawyer too. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's there's a lot of work out there. At the same time, there's a lot of new attorneys out there who message me. They email me, uh, they find me on social media, and they message me and they say, "Hey, I'm in law school, or I just graduated. I really want to be an attorney in the video game field. You know, how do I break in?" And at the same time, while I'm sitting there saying, "Oh yeah, there's all this work. It's it's great." Like. It's also not, it's, it's an industry that a lot of lawyers want to be in. A lot of lawyers want to say, hey, I'm, I'm, I do video game work, but it's not that easy to break into either. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if you're making a game based on existing IP, be careful out there, adhere to the guidelines. But if you do run into trouble, you can call Stephen MacArthur. He is the founder of the MacArthur Law Firm, which is located in Los Angeles. But you can find him at smacarthurlaw.com or on Twitter at Game Attorneys. And we appreciate your time. Thanks, Stephen. Thank you for having me on. 
And I will bid farewell to Justin, too. You can find Justin and follow his gaming adventures on Twitter at Brother Numsa or on The Ringer, where he has helped us turn The Ringer into a video game website, slowly but surely. Oh, yeah. And uh, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, guys. Okay, Jason is back, and you have a home now. Free of coyotes. Well, it's in the flat. It's in the flatlands area, so I believe there's no coyotes there. But I can't be certain. I'm not sure of their the range of their roaming. <laughs> this is something I've got to learn about. Yeah. So, in lieu of answering our typical Twitter question at the end of an episode, I want you to tell me about a game that you're playing, Outlast 2. And <sighs> since I <sighs> asked Charity about the fear yes. factor of Prey, I want to ask you about the fear factor of Outlast 2. Not that I'm actually considering playing Outlast 2, because well, I'm, I'm just going to guess it's w- high. Well, whereas Prey is like kind of the weirdness is like this kind of light body horror and weird like mm-hmm. interdimensionality. Outlast 2 is like straight up a horror movie and it's uh it's different than Resident Evil 7 which I really enjoyed because it's more I guess you would say like high horror like 80 it feels very particular to like 80s mid 80s slasher slash satanic horror uh-huh. like there's a part where you wake up early on and you kind of drag yourself out of the mud and then you find yourself in this um like an abandoned high school you know and it's that thing of oh this door is locked i turn around and i see like a strange man looking at me and then he turns away and disappears around a corner and then i get to that Mm. corner he's gone like all that kind of stuff i'm Um, out yeah (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what are you outlasting I've never played an Outlast just game. Just kind of just evil. There's also like it's there's this weird like it's gory and there's like a, there's a lot of like weirdly sexual things that happen. Like it's not for you, Ben, but I would <laughs> I would pay hard currency to watch you play this on a Twitch stream, like in a dark room <laughs> where you have to like in order for you to be able to leave the room, you need to play like two levels of this game. Oof. You can't fight anything, right? You just have to run and hide. There's there's no no yeah. weapons. Yes, you're outlasting. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. but yeah, it's I'm early on, but it's it's been uh, very promising, and it's like I wouldn't have bought it if I didn't enjoy Resident Evil Seven so much, and um, mm-hmm. I might like this a little better. Resident Evil Seven is great. They do so much with just like there's a, one challenge is basically like you have to just kind of like not be seen by this guy. So it's a lot of walking in a circle through hallways and kind of like. a portion of a destroyed house you mm-hmm. can't really attack him you just are basically like trying to avoid him that was cool this is there's much more going on um i like it mm-hmm. so far all right well i'm glad this podcast has the horror corner covered by at least one of us so well done so we will leave it there you can find us on twitter at achievement pod you can find us on facebook where there's a good discussion group going at facebook.com slash groups slash achievement oriented and you can rate and review us on itunes if you're so inclined we will talk to you all next week thanks jason yep thank you
Thanks again to Dollar Shave Club for sponsoring today's episode. Dollar Shave Club is the smarter choice. Get a great shave at a great price, conveniently delivered right to your door. And for a limited time, new members get their first month of the Executive Razor with a tube of Dr. Carver Shave Butter for only $5 with free shipping by going to dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement. After that, razors are just a few bucks a month. Again, that's dollarshaveclub.com slash achievement. And thanks again to Gamefly for sponsoring today's episode. Gamefly is the best way to buy and rent all of your favorite games. At Gamefly.com, you can pick your favorite games and have them mailed directly to your door. So go to Gamefly.com AO and start your free premium 30-day trial today. Premium trial allows you to check out two games and or movies at a time. You can only get this offer by visiting Gamefly.com AO. So go sign up and start playing all your favorite games absolutely free for 30 days.